0: Well, first of all, John Metcalf is a celebrated Canadian editor, primarily of short stories, a fiction writer, and also perhaps lesser known as a book collector, collector of, uh, again, short stories.
1: Yes, that's would that good. sum things up, yeah. Okay.
0: Thanks for the tea. My oh, pleasure. So, to start with John Carter, what would you say about John Carter?
1: Well, I would say that this taste and technique in book uh, collecting is probably the finest and mm-hmm. most complete and the most sophisticated introduction to the whole idea of collecting books that has ever been written. It is, it's is—it's one of the fundamental books about book collecting uh, and it not only describes terms and it not only describes Describes the teaching of how to read catalogues and indeed how to catalogue books. It, it, it takes in all the terminology that you will meet in the rare book trade and it, it explains everything in very simple... Elegant. Language. And elegantly expressed terms, yes. Probably the most important book for a book collector to own.
0: Well, that's a good place to start, then. (laughs) And we'll start off at the very beginning of it. And he quotes an A.W. Pollard from the Encyclopedia Britannica as defining book collecting as, The bringing together of books which in their contents, their form, or the history of the individual copy, possess some element of permanent interest and either actually or prospectively are rare in the sense of being difficult to procure. This qualification of rarity, he continued, which figures much too large in the popular view of book collecting, is entirely subordinate to that of interest, for the rarity of a book devoid of interest is a matter of no concern.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, you know, I mean, there are some people who collect the most amazing things, which are possibly of very little interest to anybody. Acquisition is not actually the point at all. I think the point is the aesthetic pleasure that you have in books, their rarity, the number of them in their first edition that was printed, in many cases, are very, very important books. Tiny numbers were first printed. Yeah, one or two thousand, right, if that. Yes, if that. So, say, in American terms, if if a book was printed in in an issue of two thousand copies, it is almost, by definition, a rare book. When you factor into the uh, equation that probably a quarter of the entire print run, run is destroyed or lost or, you know, Pissed on by the dog or whatever, Mm -hmm. you're you're, you're left with a possible number of, say, 1,500, although that might be far too generous, and then those are destroyed by dust, by rats, by mice, by coffee stains on the dust jacket, so that when you get down to a book like Flannery O'Connor's a good man is hard to find, which was printed in two thousand copies. If you can find one now in beautiful condition, you're looking at four thousand dollars American. If you're looking at an inscribed or signed one, you're looking at six and a half to ten thousand dollars. I mean you're looking at something very, very rare. You know, one of the one of the things that People don't talk about it a great deal. I don't even think uh, John Carter talked about it a great deal in that book. But one of the things that you're talking about here is romanticism. You know, now hard-headed librarians are going to say to you, well, we're not interested in a signed or an inscribed copy of a book. Uh, because what does it add to the text? Uh, what does it add to our understanding of what the writer was saying, well I mean the answer obviously is nothing but if you can find a book signed by Nabokov who signed very very few books ever in his life the difference in price between a signed first edition Nabokov and an unsigned first edition Nabokov is probably 100 for the unsigned 3,000 the sign.
0: It's a function of the uh, number of books that the author would have signed, too, of course. Yeah, Versity but it's, it's, the
1: it's the market, it's the romanticism of saying, I am holding in my hands an actual copy of this book by Nabokov that Nabokov held in his hands and signed, you know, mm-hmm. and therefore, in this quasi mystical way, I have a relationship to this man mm-hmm. or this woman it's a factor in the market that's hugely important
0: another quote and I'll be throwing a few of them at you just, to, just at the beginning of this interview for a man's handling of a book is as instantly revealing to the experienced eye as his grasp on the reins of a horse
1: mm-hmm. Yes,
0: Mm-hmm. and I suppose just the way of first of all respecting the book the way you would handle it but also I think you'd be able to just tell the affection with which a book lover would hold the
1: item. Yes, and the immediate way that a collector will look at a book, a lot of people will look at a a book's cover, which a collector will also do, but I mean the first thing that a collector will do will be, oh, let me invent this. He will take the cover off, to look at the inside condition of the book. He will look to see if the book is cloth-bound or cloth and boards. He'll look to see if the corners are bumped, all four of them. He'll check to see if the dust jacket is, you know, in impeccable condition, if there are tears. And he will check things like the reverse side of the title page of the book, the page that lists all the cataloguing material to see that it is in fact a stated first edition its date of publication. He will check on the inside of the front free flap to see if it has a printed price because if it doesn't it is more than likely to be a book club edition Which is worthless. Which is worthless
0: The other thing that he would do is look at the back.
1: Well, the rear side of the uh, bottom side of the of, of the board cover to see if there is a blind stamp square which is the mark of a, a book club edition um, and he does all these things without thinking
0: there's obviously an, an intelligence and knowledge at play that you can according to carter immediately discern in someone yes by the way they, they handle the the object the next quote the book collector is in fact one of the assault troops in literature's and histories, battle against the inequity of oblivion.
1: Yeah, I think that every time a collector says this is a person I am going to collect and preserve it's a value judgment which probably not always but probably runs counter to the prevailing opinion. So, I mean, for example, when I was a young man in Canada and knowing very little about the short story, but being interested in it, not having been taught anything about it in university in England, as it was there considered basically an American preoccupation, I started to write and I became. Uh, very interested in uh, uh, American short story writing as indeed anyone who isn't a fool should be about two years into this preoccupation I became aware of a writer not that many years older than me called Richard Yates I bought a copy of his second book which was called Eleven Kinds of Loneliness which is probably one of the most stupendous books of short stories that's ever been published in the United States. I mean, it's up there with Scott Fitzgerald and Hemingway and everybody else. bought everything that Yeats wrote. And during his lifetime, I watched his reputation rise and then disappear completely. Every book of Yeats's was out of print, and he became unknown. But I didn't give up. And I was buying Yates all the time. and I have Yates. A big movie out. Right. But uh, And everybody's growth. saying, yes. who the fuck is this guy? Yes. You know, why didn't we know? I knew. Yes, and that's
0: your taste. You clicked with that author and realized
1: that he was Oh, important. but there, there have been many of them that I have clicked with. But the world doesn't click with. I do. You know, I mean, another one that I've just been buying is Dennis Johnston. Fantastic writer. I've been buying Diaz in the United States. Not too many books he's put out. He's put out two that I know of so far, but I have the first one signed and inscribed, and not many people will have because it was probably printed in about a thousand copies. I yeah. mean, which is nothing for the United States. I mean, right. that's that's like, you know, a rarity, yeah. stuff immediate.
0: So, getting back to the quote about oblivion then, it's the eye of the collector able to determine quality where perhaps
1: others couldn't? Yes, there's that involved, and there's also involved the fact that the very best dealer in the various countries, you know, throughout the world, usually have a very keen, sharp eye on things, and will stockpile particular writers, and will send warning shots across the bowers of collectors. Like, some of the top dealers in the United States write letters to me, and they say, do you know this guy? If not, read it, and see what you think, you know? And very often, some of the big American dealers do this for me, like Ken Lopez, they mm-hmm. say, Read Rick Bass," And I say, Who the fuck is Rick Bass?" And they say, Read it. I find it in a library, and I read a story, or a couple of stories, and then I say, Yes, send me Rick Bass."
0: Interesting, isn't it? It's a, it's, a bookseller. You'd think that, that that sort of advice would come from the book group critic, or yeah, a, but it doesn't. But it doesn't. The, the it's academy, the,
1: the universities are staffed by people who haven't read a new book in 30 years, mm. they have no idea of what's going on. It's the people out there on the front line who who have the knowledge. And of course, there's huge interplay, you know, all the time between the major publishing houses and the rare book dealers. Like the, and I, d- I don't mean in a commercial level, I mean the editors at not from places like that are talking to people like Ken Lopez. Because
0: Lopez, of course, wants to get in early before... Well, he wants to
1: buy up all the stuff, uh, you know, at cheap prices and sell it as high as he can, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And also this trade that goes on, you know, in advanced reading copies and mm-hmm. stuff like that. You know, yeah. which are theoretically not for sale, but I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, that's, yeah. a commercial, that's a commercial thing. But, you know, it, 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 it's fair enough. Because those advanced reading copies are not going to, you know, professors emeritus from Columbia and Harvard and Yale, you know, who probably haven't read anything new in years. That's the second time you've jabbered Well, it? it's, I mean, they're so useless. I mean, yeah. uh, it'll take them another 15 to 20 years to figure out who Diaz is, by which time he'll be halfway towards being dead, you know.
0: Another quote, in Nature, the bird of who gets up earliest catches the most worms, but in book collecting, the prize falls to birds who know worms when they see them. Exactly. It's crucial to our quest for the definition of the book collector to consider why, A, he so passionately wants one of those books in its original edition at all, and B, why she attaches so much importance to its being bibliographically correct in all material points of edition and issue and in as nearly as possible the same physical condition as on the day it first appeared.
1: It's difficult to offer a rational defense of why one collects first editions. I mean, the original reason why people collected first editions was a purely physical one, that the type was lead, and as it went through printing after printing, it became distorted and destroyed. So the first printing was the cleanest and sharpest, etc. And subsequent printings would become blurred or, you know, I mean, not not, not to grotesque levels, but they were not as sharp, they were not as perfect as the first take off the lead. Now, of course, we don't use lead at all. I mean, we're using films. I mean, the, 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 you know, the whole argument. Doesn't exist. So, I mean, what you have to say, if you're being rational, is that it all comes down basically to romanticism. <laughs> you want the first, most beautiful, most perfect copy of this book that you adore by somebody that, because of that book, you adore. And that's all there is to it, you know. Mm -hmm. There's rarity, but it's a kind of a notional thing, you know. I mean, it's a kind of a pact that we make. All of us, you know, book buyers, booksellers, book writers, everybody. And they say, the first appearance in the world of this book, in beautiful condition, signed and therefore touched by the person who wrote it, This is the closest I can get to this person. So whoever the object of your lusts and affections are, whether it be Salinger, whether it be Hemingway, whether it be Evelyn Waugh, you can hold and own this thing. Mm -hmm. And there's only a very few of them, and you've got one, and you love it. (laughs) And that's what it's all about.
0: I've also heard or read that... uh, And I guess it would depend upon the degree to which the author is involved in the actual production of the book. But one argument that joins with what you've just said is that this is the way that that author wanted his or her work to appear in front of the world.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Sometimes authors uh, have less input into the way that things look (laughs) than they... uh, (laughs) <laughs> than they would like in fact it's written into most publishing contracts that they have no right whatsoever to any uh, you know, uh, authority over design but I, I, I think it's more it's more a sense that this is the way that this book first hit the world and you know if it's signed or inscribed or what have you that this is the This is a book that has been touched by, you know, whoever your icon may be. James Joyce, uh, you know, Ernest Hemingway. I would love to have a signed Ernest Hemingway. But you would have to be a very rich person these days to own a signed Hemingway. The cheapest that I've ever seen was 10,000 American for a later book. If you wanted a copy of Three Stories and Ten Poems, the contact edition of 1923 from Paris, you're looking at 30,000 American, And I'd pay it in an instant if I had it, without thinking, obviously worth it.
0: I'm speaking with John Metcalf, a renowned editor of short, uh, Canadian short stories, uh, uh, an author in his own right of short stories and uh, a book collector. Indeed, the Greeks might also have been justified in invoking Eros to describe the feeling which animates the true collector, that kind of love which demands the physical possession of its object, which consumes the collector with passionate longings, chills him with fear of his rivals, tortures him with envy. Bibliophily is on the whole a civilized pursuit, yet its votaries know the heights and the depths.
1: I think that's deadly accurate.
0: <laughs> <laughs> one of the concerns that you raise in, in one of the books that you've, you've written, books of criticism, you talked about the fact that Canadians don't adequately respect or love their great works or at least they won't put their money where their mouths are which, which means that at this point you can buy great works of Canadian literature for not huge amounts of money and, and this, this shows in, in your opinion a lack of respect or lack uh, of interest or uh, a
1: lack of civilization basically it's an extraordinary thing in Canada, that nearly everything that has been written in the last 50 years is not valued at all. It's so much waste paper. I mean, you have to derive from the fact that you can buy rare, really rare, Irving Leighton books for $300. I mean, you have to ascribe this to the fact simply that Canadians do not want their own literature. They don't care about these books. Now, I mean, for example, let's take Alice Monroe, who is not a typical Canadian writer in that she has been widely recognized as one of the most important writers in the world.
0: And and I should add, her name comes up more often in, in all of the interviews that I've done with to this point several hundred authors, her name comes up the most often mm-hmm. as an example of a great writer.
1: You can buy in Canada a signed, inscribed copy of her first book, Dance of the Happy Shades, for $600. Were she an American writer, that book would cost you 6000 or more. It's simply that we don't know, we're ignorant, stupid, and we don't care. And there has been no civilising tradition in this country of bookselling. It's all, always been desperate. It's always been an effort. And the sort of early nationalist aspirations of people in the 60s and 70s has just dribbled away into nothingness. All those, say, wonderful books by Rock Carrier, the, the you know, Floralie, Where Are You?, and uh, La Guerre, Yes Sir, and all those kinds of books from a Nancy, you can buy them for five bucks, because nobody gives a fuck. And, I mean, this is not a comforting thing to say. But you have to say it. I mean, it's true. Y-
0: yes, but first of all, the United States has a much larger population, for one thing. That's so. And the fact that Alice Monroe is Canadian apparently is, hurts the value of her books in the American market. Absolutely. Even though yes. she's widely acknowledged as one mm-hmm. of the best short story writers in the world. The mere fact that she because, is Canadian. That's
1: because they're parochial. We are grimly stupid. <laughs> okay.
0: It's not about the quality of the writing, obviously. Otherwise, no. her work would be going for the same no. amount that yeah. Raymond Carver's work would be. Sure, Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: It's just because she's Canadian. Right, yeah. And Canadians aren't taking advantage of that. I suppose the thing is, though... Her books will never... It's not an investment. Her books will never be worth what no, an American short book... No, short because, short I mean, you, you,
1: you know, you get this argument all the time from people, and I always answer it by saying, look, if Canadians don't care about a Canadian writer, why the fuck should anyone else? <laughs> well, yeah, okay. the answer to that
0: is because it's the best yeah, writing yeah, in the world. Yeah, yeah
1: but, but, I mean, there is always an American judgment a political factor. There are problems for Alice in England. She doesn't sell as well in England Mm. as she sells in the States. And that's because the English say, Well who is this person? This Canadian person, you know In in other words, people are not looking at the work and saying we should reward this work for what it is. They're saying Who is this person, and how powerful and important are they in the political structures of literature, and blah, 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 blah.
0: And you'd think over time, though, that that her value was... Well, we... we, It's not that it's not acknowledged right
1: now, though. No, no, no. Her value is acknowledged all over the world. Listen, this has been going on since 1968. And if the main part of Alice's career had not taken off with The New Yorker, and she was still publishing in The Fiddlehead, she would be as unknown now as she was in 1968 because Canada is unable, basically, to recognize hierarchically anybody. I mean, Canadians do not understand literature. They don't understand that one thing is better than another. It's beyond them. They are so unsophisticated, so unlearned in literature, that Alice Munro will never be valued by Canadians. I mean, this is why real book collectors, those who are driven by lust and greed as well, buy up every copy of Dance of the Happy Shades that they come across and sit on it. How many do you have? Because they're going to sell it in the United States. Mm -hmm. Gradually, the price is coming up in the States. It's up to about 500 now. And it will rise, but you know it's so slow. What you just said
0: has uh, prompted me to to read this short sentence here, again from our uh, John Carter's Taste and Technique in Book Collecting. Some may think the word connoisseurship has a snobbish sound, and I would use a four-letter Saxon equivalent if such existed, all it means is the ability to distinguish good from bad, the significant from the commonplace in the same kind, with some concomitant satisfaction in the exercise of that ability. Mm-hmm. And you're saying that that's lacking in, uh, what, Canadian book collectors or just in, lovers of literature? Canadian
1: society in general, I would say. I mean, I, I'm a great proponent of connoisseurship, and it, it sort of summed up in many ways for me in the life and career of a man that I deeply, deeply respect, Sir Kenneth Clark. This was a guy who knew so much and had handled so much and this is the this is the essence of connoisseurship that you've read so much or you've seen so much, that you have gone beyond the crude exercise of saying "This is a good example, that's a bad example of the same thing to points of refinement that most people can't even imagine possible but are absolutely so. I love the story about. The art gallery in, uh, I think it was in Sydney or Melbourne, I forget which now, invited Clark to go over there and advise them about what they should do about acquisitions for the National Gallery of Australia. What painters should they be buying? And, you know, he walked into the gallery, and apparently in the foyer of the National Gallery of Australia. I've never been there, but I've I, I read his autobiography. There is in the foyer a vast stuffed racehorse that is a, a, an object of great national pride, you know, and his heart sank when he saw this. And he looked round and he made some general suggestions. And then he walked out down the street, away from the gallery and he came across like a private art gallery, you know, like a a shop and there were paintings by um, Sidney Nolan in there of the Kelly Gang series of paintings, those those wonderful paintings of the chap with the sort of tin can thing like on his head, you know and and he, he, he just stood transfixed and then he went back to the gallery and he said, if you've got any sense in the world, buy this man. And they didn't But yes, connoisseurship is what it's all about. People say to me, I've been editing for 40 years, and they say to me, well how do you know that this story collection is something that you want to publish or should be published or... And they say, and how come you find all these people that nobody else finds? And I say to them, I say, I read one paragraph and I know within one paragraph if this writer is of any interest whatsoever. I don't need to know anything else and I have offered writers contracts on the strength of one paragraph of one story. I don't need to know more because I have 40 years of experience of reading thousands of manuscripts I mean Clark for example or Bernard Berenson had actually travelled all over Italy, he'd gone into every miserable little village church in Italy, and he'd looked at every single one of these paintings. So, I mean, if some great scholar or academic said this is a terribly important painting, and Barrison looked at it and said it's a piece of crap, who's opinion would I pay attention to? I always go to the people who know, who've seen the things, who've handled it all. I mean, it's the same with African carvings behind us here. You you only get to know whether they're genuine and whether they're any good by having handled hundreds and thousands of them, which I have. And this is the way that you learn. You cannot learn this stuff from books. What we're going to do
0: right now is try to provide advice to the young Canadian book collector. And they don't want to wait 40 years. So, do they go with their instinct? Because I think that says quite a bit. Yes, Yes. they must. If they, in their bones, feel and know that this is great, at least based on what they've read to date, is that what they should should go with?
1: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's the same with collecting painting. If you listen to the experts, you might be all right, but you well might not. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, the answer is that you should buy and you should collect that with which you fall in love. And if somebody tells me that Alex Colville who commands prices, you know, in the million, is a great painter, my instinctive gut reaction is rubbish. He's like a superior book illustrator, you know, he's a lousy painter. Mm -hmm. And somebody that you've never heard of, but that I've seen, say, in a local gallery or in a gallery in Toronto or whatever it is, has painted something where the paint surface engages me, where the Colors engage me where, you know, the whole, the whole thing charms me and I fall in love with it. Mm. That is the thing to buy.
0: Well, and, that's the thing to buy, but it's also, I think, before you make that purchase, I think the individual collector needs to put some reasoning behind their love so that they can then justify. Well, I, I, love. Very,
1: very often I think there is no reasoning, I mean, that it's pure love.
0: It behooves them to to, to think as, as deeply as they can, as yes. seriously as they can, yeah. about why they love a particular author before they go out and start buying them.
1: Yeah, but I mean, the first thing, the first, the primal thing, is that you read love. something and you say, yeah. I love this. Yes. Okay. And, and very often, it's very hard to say why exactly, um, or, or in fact to be rational about it.
0: So, collect what you love... Perhaps you could then, although your advice is not to listen to experts, perhaps you could... You've, you've Oh, identified listen to
1: connoisseurs. <laughs> okay. <laughs> not not <academic>. <laughs> Okay.
0: <laughs> so you've identified uh, Alice Monroe. Let's say, again, we've got a young person who's got some... Let's say they've got $5,000 that they, instead of putting mm. into a pissy mutual fund that mm. disappeared mm. in f- five years, they want to collect a great Canadian author, how how would you recommend they best spend that money?
1: Well, I, I mean, I think that, you know, there are... you You can collect almost any Canadian author for next to nothing, because they're undervalued on all markets, simply because Canadians don't collect them at all. Americans are prejudiced against them. Why should they collect Canadians, for God's sake, you know? Yeah. Why should the English collect Canadians? and especially collect Canadians that Canadians couldn't care less about. But, I mean, if I were, as a connoisseur, saying, as a young person starting out, what should you be sucking away now? Well, Alice Munro, obviously, Mavis Gallant, obviously, Mordecai Richler, obviously. Then, there's a big gap. Just the three? Well, those three, I mean, are obviously sort of blue chip. The ones that are hugely touted and respected and, you know, trumpeted about. Timothy Finley? Already gone. Robertson Davies, an old wing You know, I mean, it, you could pay lots of money for Robertson Davies, but, I mean, you're going to end up with crap. I mean, you, you're just losing losing the farm on that one. As an investment, well, primarily as an yes. investment. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, I mean, it, it seems to me fairly obvious that the most accomplished genre in Canada is the short story, and the place where you should be investing is in the younger short story writers. Well, uh, you know, I'm, to me, they seem young, because I publish most of them. And, you know, they're much younger than I am, but, um, you know, they're they're not that young anymore. They're they're into their late 40s and early 50s now. And the much younger ones that are still coming up, Caroline Addison, Terry Criggs, Michael Winter, Mike Barnes, KD Miller. One that I just published last year, Rebecca Rosenblum. One that I am in the process of publishing at the moment, Amy Jones. There's a whole list of them. There are probably 20 or 30 of them that a, a really enterprising young collector would be preserving now in impeccable first conditions and preferably signed and inscribed, which is not difficult. You know, as many of these people are routinely about, signing books, doing readings, this kind of thing. Um, there's, a, there's a list that I call the century list in my last book, shall that be explained? Yes. But yes. lists most of these young writers. And if you put together a selection of those, plus another 10 or 15 or so, Sharon English, people like that, you would have a very valuable collection. From an aesthetic point of view, Mm -hmm. from a financial point of view, largely worthless. For the very simple reason that Canada does not consider these people of the slightest importance. Whereas I consider them to be the very taste and essence of the country. And they will represent the future of Canada, if there is to be a future of Canada. And these will be the people that, if literature continues in this country, which seems to me debatable at many points, these will be the people that that people will look back on and say, my... God, this was Canadian literature. But we didn't recognize it at the time. Well, I hope this spurs
0: uh, <laughs> some recognition. Thanks very much for your time. Okay, I'll be speaking with John Metcalf, renowned editor, writer, and book collector. <laughs> Thanks very much.